Hey, this is Bridget. And this is Emily. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. And as a quick reminder before we dive into today's episode... Bossed Up the Podcast is officially live in Apple Podcasts, so go subscribe now if you are interested in keeping in touch and getting some bossed up career advice and some personal and professional development in your earbuds on a regular basis. The podcast is debuting March 1st, but you can get subscribed right now. Thank you so much for welcoming me with such open arms as Bridget and I have taken this journey together on Stuff Mom Never Told You, and I can't wait to hear where we go from here. And now for today's episode. So right off the bat, we have to start with a trigger warning. This episode deals with gun violence. Sadly, the topic of mass shootings is timely, and it seems like it always is. On Wednesday, at least 17 people were killed during a school shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. The suspect, 19-year-old Nicholas Cruz, was arrested on the scene. You may have seen on CNN a mother who lost one of her children in this horrific shooting pleaded with Donald Trump to do something about gun violence in this country. Here's what she had to say. How? How do we allow a gunman to come into our children's school? How do they get through security? What security is there? There's no metal detectors. The gunman, a crazy person, just walks right into the school, knocks down the window of my child's door, and starts shooting, shooting her and killing her. President Trump, you say, what can you do? You can stop the guns from getting into these children's hands. Oh, my God. I honestly do not know how anybody can listen to the raw grief and and sort of carnal plea in that woman's voice, that mother's voice that anybody with children especially must be able to relate to and then go on and do nothing about it or like Donald Trump, not even respond to that. Well, I actually think that As a country, we reached a moment where we just decided this is our new normal. I think after Newtown, as a country, we just threw up our hands. We decided this is our new normal. Nothing can be done. We are numb to this issue. Once we decided that babies could get shot at point blank range and we weren't going to do a damn thing about it, I think it became clear how our country is reacting to this issue. And I think it is not at all. We are not reacting at all. Yeah, it feels like we've hit rock bottom. Do you feel like that's true for politicians or the public or both? Both. I think when babies get killed, I think that when we as a country agreed that it was okay that babies got killed. Yeah, but so many people weren't okay with that. I feel like if it ever came close, it was then. People made their voices heard, organizations sprung up, people donated. I mean, the parents there got so involved. Yeah. And what happened? And still nothing. What was, nothing happened, right? Yeah. So I, I, it sounds so cynical, but I think that we just all agreed this is our normal and so this is our life. We and somehow agreed to tolerate this inaction. We, yeah, we decided it was tolerable. And that's what I find so disgusting that we, I mean, listen, I'm including myself in this, that when I saw the news of this breaking on Twitter, I just thought another one. I remember when Columbine happened, you know, I was a teenager, I was in school, and I remember the way that parents and teachers and administrators, that was a big deal. We were all in a fervor. And now, so so many years later, it's so interesting how it barely even registers. Well, the frequency has gone up so much that now we don't even know the names of the schools. These mass shootings no longer have individualized names. 
Newtown was a standout, an anomaly in that regard. The shootings that happen nowadays happen so frequently that we can't even keep track of them or or name them. Exactly. When you see the name of a town trending on Twitter, you just assume there was a shooting there. And it's just it's I think it's our new normal. And it's really sad and disgusting. So let's talk a little bit about what happened in Florida. So Cruz, who is the perpetrator of this attack, was described as a troubled student, the kind of student that nobody was surprised would do this kind of thing. In fact, he was so troubled that he wasn't even allowed to carry a backpack to school. He made threats on social media. His social media presence was filled with pictures of dead animals and things that you would see and think, oh, this kid could be a threat. So it wasn't like he was someone who was hiding in plain sight, waiting to do something. He was on people's radars. Yeah. And according to the Anti-Defamation League, he had ties to white supremacist groups as well. Yeah, on social media, he hurled slurs at blacks and Muslims and really seemed like the kind of person who should not have access to guns. Right. In fact, the FBI received a report and YouTube was reported to just five months ago when he commented on a YouTube video saying that he wanted to become a professional school shooter. The creator of the video, which I think was about guns flagged the comment, alerted YouTube, and emailed the FBI around it. And despite the fact that his name, first and last, was the username that he was posting under on YouTube, the FBI couldn't trace the lead back to anything. Wow, that is horrifying. So while all these traits seem like the typical markers of a would-be mass shooter, Cruz actually shares another trait in common with most mass shooters, one that often goes overlooked. And that is a history of troubling and violent behavior toward women. In fact, you'll hear an episode from us later this week about why it's so horrifying that our White House, this administration, seems to be able to look past people with histories of violence towards women as something that's just a personal matter and not that big a deal. But this is a great reminder that when we treat domestic violence or violence against women as a personal matter and not a very serious predictor of future potentially mass violence, but really violence in general, We are doing the world a disservice. We are making the world a less safe place and allowing these kinds of people to have easy, legal access to guns is abhorrent. Exactly. What this whole situation underscores to me is how not seriously we take violence against women and domestic violence. And when researchers say, hey, violence against women can actually be thought of as a risk factor for violent behavior toward the general public later on, It just goes to show why it's so critical to take domestic violence seriously. And we're not. Well, it's interesting, right? Because that argument could also be warped into saying, is it not enough that a a domestic abuser is already violent towards a woman? We have to validate the fear. We have to double down on the, the relevance of that kind of violence by saying, also... This could be a predictor of violence towards everybody. So maybe that you'll care about it then. Right. I mean, again, it goes to show that As a country, when it happens behind closed door in a home, we just think it's not our problem. But I think that there needs to be a shift that domestic violence is everybody's problem. So true. So, so true. So Cruz apparently had a history of violent and troubling behavior toward women and girls. Uh, One of his classmates told USA Today that Cruz had ultimately been expelled from school after a fight with his ex-girlfriend's new boyfriend. She also said that he'd been abusive to one of his earlier girlfriends. Other students have pointed out that he was taken with a female student to the point of stalking. Yeah, I hate how they phrase that in the press, too. He was taken with her so much, he stalked her. No, he He stalked stalked her. her. Yeah, and that's according to his math teacher and another student who had said that he was formally 
close friends with Cruz, but cut off his friendship after he started going after and threatening a female friend of his. Really, it sounds like in addition to a whole host of other troubling factors going on in this kid's life that people seemingly didn't do anything about, one of those factors was violence and disturbing behavior toward women in his life. And it turns out he's not alone. Let's talk more about that after a quick break. And we're back. So it's probably unsurprising to you that the perpetrators of mass shootings in modern America are overwhelmingly male, but they overwhelmingly also have a history of domestic abuse or misogynistic behavior toward women. Yeah, we're talking about people like Omar Mateen, the 29-year-old who killed 49 people at the Pulse nightclub tragedy in Orlando in 2016. He had reportedly abused his former wife on a regular basis. Yeah, and the Virginia Tech shooter in April 2007, who gunned down 32 people at his school, was previously accused of harassing women two years earlier. And the Virginia police actually had to order him to stop contacting another female student. I mean, honestly, time and time again, every single time we we see a mass shooting like this one, look into the typically male perpetrator's background, and you often see abusive, harassing, violent behavior towards women along with a whole host of other warning signs, including, by the way, cruelty towards animals, which was certainly present in terms of this particular most recent shooter's background. Exactly. According to Business Insider, nine out of the 10 deadliest mass shooting perpetrators have a history of threatening, committing, or verbalizing domestic violence. And according to Every Town for Gun Safety, mass shooters killed a partner or a family member in 54% of shootings. So again, it means that This idea that domestic violence is something that's happening in the home, you know, none of our business, that kind of thinking allows people who really might have the capability to do something on a wider scale to fester. And what's especially troubling to me is how easy it is for these folks to get firearms. It's really an American form of exceptionalism in terms of our ubiquity of firearms in this country and the ease with which people can buy them. Technically, Folks who have domestic violence backgrounds on their record aren't supposed to be able to get firearms. They're legally barred from buying guns in our country. But many of them have been able to get high-capacity firearms anyway. There's a bunch of different loopholes that the NRA in particular has been steadfast in maintaining um, and not closing that make it pretty damn easy, for instance, at gun shows for people to get firearms without much of a background check. And again, that just goes to show that we're not taking violence against women seriously as a risk factor for mass shootings. Take, for instance, the case of Devin Patrick Kelly. Back in November, he went to the church where his wife worshipped and ended up killing 26 people. As a convicted domestic abuser, Kelly wasn't even legally allowed to have access to firearms, but he ended up owning four. How do we allow that to happen in this country? I mean, I think it's insane that... Almost anybody, including people with such violent backgrounds or warning signs or just a 19-year-old dude in general, can walk in and buy firearms that easily. And I'm I'm someone who enjoys shooting guns on occasion, by the way. Members of my family are proud gun owners, but none of them think that the way things currently are is even remotely okay. And, you know, I'm all about the sportsmanship that comes with gun ownership. There's nothing wrong with that. But at what cost? 
And certainly none of us can say that the way things are is tenable. I think that's why common sense gun laws really have quite bipartisan support. So last time we did mass national polling on this after Newtown, people on both sides of the aisle agreed something needs to change. But the NRA's chokehold on our politics is so powerful. It seems almost impossible to get anything done. You hit the nail on the head. I think most reasonable folks would say if you are convicted for a violent crime like domestic abuse, you should not be able to get your hands on a gun. Going back to the situation with Kelly, Kelly was a member of the Air Force, which acknowledged that he kind of slipped through the cracks. They say that it appears that Kelly's domestic violence conviction was not entered into the National Crime Information Center database, which is why he was able to pass a background check for a gun. And to make things more terrifying, this case is not that unusual. According to a Florida International University report, the military mishandled roughly 13,000 domestic violence cases between 2004 and 2012, including misclassifications that allowed abusers to go unreported in the NCIC. So essentially, people who have convictions for domestic violence who really should not have their hands on guns can kind of get them. And this isn't just isolated to military personnel. Spotty enforcement really does allow abusers to fall through the cracks. While 28 states and D.C. have laws prohibiting convicted domestic abusers from buying or possessing firearms, only 14 states require those people to give up the guns they already have. So if you have a gun in your house and you get convicted of domestic violence, it's a crapshoot whether or not you are legally required to give up a gun that you already have in your possession. Well, not to mention enforcement of that law is extremely difficult. Literally all that police officers have to go on is someone else's report, like uh, an abused, estranged ex-wife or partner saying, yeah, he has a firearm, a handgun, he keeps it under his pillow. They knock on his door and say, do you have a firearm? We've heard you have a handgun. We heard you keep it under your pillow. Can you give it to us? And literally they can say... I got no firearm here. And that's it. Story's over. Honor system. It's insane. I definitely think having convicted domestic abusers on the honor system is probably a bad plan. Actually, there was a story I was listening to about this on my new local NPR station in Denver, Colorado. And granted, this varies state to state. But in Denver, the police were saying we oftentimes have to get in touch with these typically men's mothers to ask their mothers to reason with them. Wow. And I'm like, God, the world is a broken place if police are asking for the unpaid labor of abusers' mothers to talk some sense into their weapon-wielding, abusive sons. Ugh, that depresses me. It's very depressing. This is so fundamentally broken. And in other countries, when things were this broken, they did something about it. And they said, hey... No guns for you anymore in Australia. Or, hey, no civilian firearms in the UK, which is extreme. And obviously, we don't even need to be that extreme to make progress here in the United States. But our lack of action altogether is a global embarrassment. And it seems uniquely applied to the issue of guns because... Not that long ago, one guy tried to sneak a bomb onto a plane in his shoe, and now we all take off our shoes at the airport. So it's like, why is it that when that happened, we needed swift change from the top down? And when it comes to guns, it's just this sort of do-nothing approach. It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, it's the Constitution. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... Okay, the Constitution, but I'm sure when the framers wrote the Constitution, they weren't imagining semi-automatic weapons. Definitely. Right, it's like like, people who go back to that, I think, did you think that the framers had... I'm just saying, if the framers had made an amendment about the right to wear your shoes, 
Fair. We'd have a bigger argument about that. Fair. But instead, they happen to write the right to bear arms, and here we are with this cluster of an interpretation war over what that really means. And I'm with you 100%. There's no way that they were talking about semi-automatic rifles that could take down an elephant being freely available to 19-year-olds. Right. I'm sure this is not what they had in mind when, <laughs> not... they, were, when they were drafting the Constitution. Right. So let's talk a little bit about what can be done about this issue if you're as pissed off as we are after this quick break. And we're back. So it actually turns out, Emily, just like you were saying before, that keeping guns out of the hands of convicted domestic abusers is one of those rare issues that Democrats and Republicans kind of agree on. Senator John Cornyn of Texas said, quote, There are enormous problems with the background check system. Even Republican Senator Jeff Flake, who's now outgoing and speaking his truth in a way that he has in a long time, (laughs) teamed up with Democratic Senator Martin Heinrich to introduce a bill that would require the military to accurately record and report domestic violence convictions. And Republican governors in Utah, North Dakota, Wisconsin and Michigan have all taken steps to limit gun rights for domestic abusers. So this does seem like an issue that... Most folks are in agreement needs to be handled. And what's more, keeping guns away from convicted domestic abusers seems to be pretty effective. And despite my reference to the NPR story that ran in Denver, experts agree that those laws requiring abusers to surrender their guns are effective. The states that have implemented these so-called relinquishment laws saw a 14 percent decline in intimate partner gun homicides according to researchers at Boston University and at Duke University. Exactly. So just to be clear and to level set a little bit, in scientific terms, the link between domestic violence and gun violence still remains anecdotal. Just because mass shooters are often abusers doesn't mean that abusers are more likely to be mass shooters. And one of the things that's so troubling about this is that this link really needs to be studied more. So what you're saying is that it's a correlation, not a causal link. We actually don't really know because we don't really study this enough. These connections only become clear in hindsight, which is pretty much too late in the case of a mass shooting. And not to mention, we'd really not like to have a sample size that's big enough for us to study mass shooters in a huge way. Like, this is not a sample size that we want to increase to get better data on. We'd like to just solve this problem without having to have 4,000 mass shooters to study. That's the thing, though. We already have so many mass shootings that if we were able to study the data that is already out there, we could probably get someplace on this issue. Susan B. Sorensen, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and director of the Ortner Center on Family Violence, basically just says that same thing. She says, right now, we don't have enough data to have a pattern. The one thing that we know that mass shooters all have in common is that they have access to massive firepower. That is a single unifying force. Just a thought. Maybe we shouldn't make it so easy to get semi-automatic death machines in mass to, like, hoard these kinds of violent killing machine objects in people's homes. Maybe that's something we all don't need to have. Emily, you sound absurd. Of course we need to have that. That's that's what makes this country great, Emily. This is America we're talking about. I know. That's part of our American exceptionalism is making sure that people with demonstrated violent backgrounds can hoard weapons. I'm going to use that quote someday. (laughs) And I'll be like, she wasn't being sarcastic, folks. She was being genuine. I was. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) But yeah, a good first step in tackling this is really more research. But here's why that's not as easy as it sounds. 
the NRA has backed an amendment blocking the CDC from doing federally funded research on gun violence. So when you're hearing your politician go on TV talking about thoughts and prayers and thoughts and prayers and thoughts and prayers, just know that it is entirely possible that same politician has taken money from the NRA, the organization that makes it harder for the CDC to study gun violence. Unbelievable. The NRA, I mean, I knew the NRA was powerful, but I forgot that they have barred our disease control, our national federal center for disease control from even studying gun violence and the impact it has on our country. That is disgusting. It is disgusting. And it really goes to show the stranglehold that the NRA has on our political system. And when I see Marco Rubio go on TV and say, you know, this is so sad, thoughts and prayers, I am asking myself, how much money did you get from the NRA? If If it's so sad... Give back that money. Almost a million. Exactly. And this latest shooting, which happened on his turf in his state, if he even has the audacity to show his face there, I will be shocked because the man has taken almost $1 million from the National Rifle Association. Exactly. So you can understand why it's a little frustrating and it's almost impossible for me to take his words seriously. I'm sure he didn't want this shooting to happen, But unless he does something, who cares if he sends his thoughts and prayers? No, it's disgusting. It's despicable. So if you want to take action and make your voice heard on this regard, right now we need citizen activists to step up if we are ever going to be able to fight back against the NRA's stranglehold. We need everybody involved in this fight. And fortunately, everytown.org an organization that was established after the Newtown shooting, and if anybody has gotten that close to making real progress on this issue in the past, it was then with these organizers. They have a five-step plan for anyone who wants to make their voice heard on this issue. And the first is to take their pledge to vote on gun safety. Know how much the NRA is donating to the campaigns of politicians you're considering and don't vote for them. Vote out anybody who's been taking money from the NRA, step one. They also say, please get registered to vote and make sure that your friends and family are registered too. We can vote these suckers out of office if we don't like where they stand on gun violence prevention. And we should do just that. They also recommend attending a meeting to learn about the Gun Sense Candidate Questionnaire that we can use to hold our leaders accountable on Election Day. Basically, not everybody's very clear about where they stand on gun violence. Everybody sounds like we're all in it for the thoughts and prayers and children and safety and yada, yada, yada. It sounds nice and dandy, and it's not always easy to find out who's taking money from the NRA. But there's a questionnaire that every town has created where you can really get more information and use it to go to events and ask your politicians, ask folks who are running for office where they really stand on the issues. And their last recommendation is one I think is great. Run for office your damn self. If you don't like where your lawmakers stand on this issue, maybe you can do a better job. Maybe somebody out there listening has the skills, has the power, has the drive to get us someplace on this issue. Maybe it's you, Sminty listener. So if you don't like what your politicians are doing, get them out of there and take their place. I love it. I love it. And as a reminder, our friend Aaron from Vote Run Lead was here with a bunch of resources for how to do just that. If you haven't heard it already, go check out our episode called 2018, Is It Another Year of the Woman? Yeah, I know I started this episode talking about how I'm a bit numb to gun violence and how it happens so often that it almost doesn't register. And I think a lot of people, sadly, feel that way. But I'm actually kind of inspired because I think that this new generation cropping up, 
they're not going to stand for this. And I really think we're talking about a generation of young people who are at the forefront of so many big political movements. Me Too, DACA, immigration reform, all of the major movements. I think it's entirely possible that they won't stand for it. Well, they shouldn't. I mean, it's children, after all, who are the victims in far too many of these massacres. And David Hogg, one of the survivors from this most recent shooting, put it so perfectly how he and his peers and really all of us will not stand for inaction and are calling the grown-ups in the situation to action to get things done for the children we proclaim to care about in this country. What we really need is action because we can say, yes, we're going to do all these things, thoughts and prayers. What we need more than that is action. Please. This is the 18th one this year. That's unacceptable. We're children. You guys are, like, are the adults. You need to take some action and play a role. Work together, come over your politics and get something done. So when you've got young people taking grown ass politicians to task, you know something needs to be done. And Sminty listeners, we are right there with them. Please, let's work together and figure out how we can be better on this issue. Let us know where you stand on this issue, what you're doing to make progress on preventing gun violence, and how we can follow through on David's call to action. Hit us up on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. Find us on Instagram at StuffMomNeverToldYou. And as always, our email inbox is open at MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs> 